the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good evening. It is lovely to be back with you. I feel slightly like Nick stole some of my sermon after he opened the series. So I'm sorry if you're like, wait, we've just heard that, but I'm blaming Nick for stealing it. Um, I am really excited to get to say welcome to a new series. It is such a joy to kick us off into five weeks in the book of Malachi. Like Nick said, I'm pretty confident that even for those of us who have been around church for a long time, this is probably not a book that we know very well. It's probably not one that we've heard spoken on often, if ever. If I'm honest, more often than not, the times I find myself in Malachi are when I've flicked a couple of pages too early for the New Testament and I'm just in the wrong place. But when we do open it and we spend some time in it, I think we find a rich tapestry of prophecy and proclamation, of truths about the everlasting loving God but also about what the reality of being the failing, hurting, struggling people of God can feel and look like when they, when we maybe, lose sight of God and his purposes. In my Bible, the book of Malachi is barely over two pages long. And although I am going to give us a kind of brief overview and history for it, I'd really encourage you to find five to ten minutes this week. Sit down and read it all through in one sitting. Because in the prophecy of Malachi, we find a dialogue, a conversation back and forth between God and the Israelites. Some commentators have labelled them as six disputes between God and his people, each slightly different. And there is huge value to focusing in on certain parts of it. That's what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks. That's what we're going to be doing in a minute. But I also think there's a danger of losing some things to sound bites if all we do is narrow it down. If we don't commit to knowing and hearing the conversation as a whole, Because then we lose the overarching sense of the narrative patterns. The arc of the conversation as it goes backwards and forwards is really important. We don't want to boil it down too quickly to just a disagreement. Because then I think we don't come away with the richness that it reveals about God's faithfulness. And to be honest, his unwavering patience with his stubborn, stubborn people. Because in the midst of hardship, in the midst of recovery from exile, disillusionment, mounting apathy, in the midst of distance from God, in Malachi we hear God speak. We hear him declare two truths over and over again. Two truths in response, I think, to everything on the Israelites' tongues and everything in the Israelites' hearts. 
I have loved you. And I, the Lord, do not change. We need the whole conversation in order to let God speak those two truths over and over to us as well. Because in the midst of hardship, in the midst of recovery from the past two years and the ongoing chaos we see around us, in the midst of disillusionment and mounting apathy, in the midst of distance from God, we need to hear those two truths. We need to hear God speak over and over again, I have loved you, and I, the Lord, do not change. We need the whole conversation. But where does the conversation come from? Where does it fit in what we know already of the Bible and who are the people involved? The name Malachi means messenger and there are various different opinions and debates about who they may have been, whether they were or not in fact called Malachi. And I'm not going to get into that now. But what is clear and I would argue far more important is that the focus should be on the message more than the messenger. That the message and the prophecy matter more than the prophet and the messenger. Because they speak into a really interesting situation. It's about a hundred years after the nation of Israel have returned from exile in Babylon. They're again a unified group. And they had come back with such great hope about what Israel was going to be, what it was going to look like, and that they were just waiting for the absolute imminent return of the Messiah. But the reality proved to be very different. Israel, in its new iteration, had proven to be just as hard-hearted and corrupt it seemed that actually very little had changed from exile. And here, the prophecy of Malachi steps into the picture and does so, I would say, with quite a bang. Like Nick says, Malachi does not pull its punches. Um, let's read together. Well, not if I can't go backwards. Okay. Malachi chapter 1 reads, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Israel doubts God's love. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. But you will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. What 
and opening <laughs> to a book of the Bible. This is a message from God. I have loved you. That's a pretty bold place to start. And we talked this morning about a really well-known opening. Most of us are probably fairly comfortable with the opening to John's Gospel. Nick touched on the opening of the whole Bible. Most of us probably have a rough idea of how Genesis starts. Why don't we know this one? Because I feel like I wish I did know this one better. I feel like it's one that we should be able to stand up and say without thinking. One that we probably need to hear more often. This is a message from God. I have loved you. R.T. Kendall puts it wonderfully that as these few pages of the prophecy of Malachi are the last recorded words of God speaking for about 400 years, they form, he says, the I love you at the end of the letter. The I love you at the end of this chapter of God in relationship with his people in this form before the coming of Jesus. So what does it mean for God to have loved the people of Israel? For God to demonstrate his unfailing love? Our translation says, I have loved you. Many others add a kind of emphatic waiting to the middle. I have always loved you. That adds a kind of reassuring sense about the timeline of God's love. This isn't finite and done. This is continuous. But I know I've spoken before about my frustrations with the English language when it comes to having one word for love. It's problematic and it's not particularly helpful. And this case is no different. The love that we read here may not be what we first picture when we hear that word. In our society, we are too used, I think, to thinking and talking about love as something that only concerns individuals. But the unfailing love of God shown here has to go so far beyond that. This is about God who has unfailingly loved his people always. This is love expressed and demonstrated in a community. And more than that, this kind of love in the original is a hub. This isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling turned in the vague direction of those God likes and is pleased with. I don't think that kind of love can ever be unfeeling. This is covenantal love between God and his people. This is about relationship in community, about choosing and faithfulness between God and his people. On the surface, it is a bit of a challenge to see God's unfailing love in the light of verses 3 to 5. They're not particularly loving. Superficially, they may not paint the picture 
of the loving God that we comfortably reach for. But in referencing Jacob and Esau, in referencing the destruction of Edom and the restoration in contrast of Israel, Malachi isn't only recalling a story of division and choosing, but is using it to set the long history of covenant as the backdrop to what he has to say. The love and hate translation here is something we need to be really careful with. It's not the emotional loading that we jump to. It is about chosen and not chosen. Those in covenant and those not in covenant. But it's also the word that the Israelites used when they agreed treaties with other nations. This is about who has established relationships with God and who hasn't. And in the light of what would happen some 400 years later, this needs to be understood carefully. The offer of covenantal relationship with God is now available to all. In these verses, the idea of chosen people, of election, isn't used to create the exclusion zone that it might feel like. It's used to highlight divine, unmerited choice by God. To offer, I think, comfort and reassurance that the failing, weak, odd choices that God made in the Israelites' history, that the distant, angry, rebellious people of Malachi's time, and that we, are still chosen by God. How much hope can that still give us? God's choosing, God's unfailing love is not like that dreaded kind of PE moment. I wonder if we've all been there, where teams are picked one by one. Until you're just left with the people who aren't cool enough, not fast enough, God doesn't choose based on merit, goodness. We can't earn his selection, but it is divine, unmerited, and now available to all. That is how God's unfailing love is demonstrated not only to the Israelites then, as God's chosen people, but to us now who sit in the place as God's people. So what about the Israelites' response to God's declaration? It's a pretty solid start from God. I have loved you. God has thrown down the gauntlet and set out his stall. This is who I am. This is how I act to you. How do they respond? Open hearts? Glad acceptance? Yeah, not so much. (laughs) They throw a question back at God. How have you loved us? Is that fear? 
uncertainty, disdain, anger? Is it that they cannot recognise the ways in which God has loved them? Or that they simply don't want to? It is impossible for us to say exactly what the answer to that question is. But given the society at the time and the distances they were putting between them and God, it seems more likely to be about disdain, doubt and unbelief than a genuine question or a lack of knowledge. I think it comes from a place of fear. And I wonder if we've ever retorted back similarly to a truth about or from God. If we've ever bitten back with a similar, but how do I know that? I know I have. Thinking about the question they asked, I'm not sure it's a completely bad one. Their motivation may or may not be in the right place. They may or may not even be genuinely asking the question. I think there are, though, some helpful parts to it. But maybe it can be asked in a better way. Maybe it's not so much a question we need to throw at God in hurt and fear and anger. But one we need to tune our hearts to regularly ask ourselves. How often do we answer the question to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness? How has God loved us? This is 100% the most highbrow reference I have ever made in my life, so bear with. (laughs) But many of you will know the Elizabeth Barrett Browning poem, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. I warned you it was highbrow for me, this is not normal. In it, she sets out to count the ways that she loves the object of her affection. And this might sound like a strange idea. And if it is too weird and out there, delete it from your memory as soon as I said it and move on. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But I wonder whether we need to be able to write something similar in which we count the ways that God has loved us. Not how do I love thee, let me count the ways, but how does he love me? Let me count the ways. Do we need to train our hearts and our minds to be able to give clear accounts of all the ways that God has loved us? Because if we were to build this into our rhythms and into our habits, to have hearts tuned to count the ways that God has always loved us, then I think we take out a lot of the danger of where the Israelites find themselves here. I think we'd find that God responds time in, time out by reiterating over and over again his unfailing and unchanging love. We stand on a different side of history to Malachi 
and the Israelites. We stand on the other side, I would say, of the greatest answer to this question. Romans 5.8 declares the answer to this question. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How have you loved us? Well, there it is. To use something from the complete opposite end of the literary spectrum, this is more me now. You're going to giggle now. (laughs) Just like the big nut brown hair, God stretches out his arms and says, but I love you this much. Only this time, he does it on a cross. In the stretching out of Jesus' arms, we are given a historical, a physical landmark to answer the question. A historical, physical landmark that says, I have always loved you, says the Lord. And surely we need to respond with the little nut brown hair. Hmm, that is a lot. In the opening verses of the prophecy of Malachi, we are introduced to one of the repeated truths that we will see in this back and forth discussion between God and his people. I have always loved you. If you stick with us for the next few weeks, it will keep coming back round. In answer to anything that the Israelites can throw as hard as they can at God. I have always loved you. The Israelites are reminded of the previous faithfulness of God. Of his unfailing love to them as his chosen people. That it was the second born, weaker Jacob, who would be a forefather of this nation. That Israel would be rebuilt, while the more powerful Edom would see God's wrath. And that all of it would be so that they would see and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. We are the evidence of that. That thousands of years later we sit here together to worship the same God. To marvel at his same unfailing love. That we have seen way beyond the borders of Israel. So my challenge for me this week. For you if you choose to accept it. Is one to be a little bit more little nut brown hair. Yeah, that's quite a lot of love kind of reaction. But also whether we can start in tiny steps to build in rhythms, to tune our hearts, to hear the voice of the Lord declaring, I have always loved the people of God. And to be able to respond with a resounding, how have you loved us? 
Let me count the ways. I'm going to pray to close that and then Nick is going to come and pray some more. Lord, we thank you that the sentence I have always loved you, says the Lord, is a complete one. That your arms spread wide on the cross show it more than anything else ever could. And we pray this week that we would learn more and more to count the ways that you have loved us. Amen.